Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That is Policies by Pete Yorn. The Republican Party down here in Richmond, Virginia, was so tusked off, as it were, that it ousted House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. He was supposed to cakewalk his way through a joke primary against a little-known and vastly outfunded college professor. No one down here much took the primary seriously. Instead, the Richmond Tea Party somehow ousted Cantor, proving that its wing of the party would have to be reckoned with this election year, and more importantly, in the 2016 presidential election. So what's the Tea Party's beef with today's GOP? Immigration? The IRS? Two Richmond Tea Party organizers join us, as well as a college professor and immigration advocate and the political director of ABC News. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. What in the world just happened here in central Virginia? David Bratt, a professor that most people never heard of. He ran against House Majority Leader Eric Cantor for the Republican nomination in Virginia's 7th Congressional District, one of the most gerrymandered districts in recent memory, and he defeated Cantor by a 12-point margin. Everyone was blindsided. We're talking one guy spending over $5 million while the underdog raised a little over $200,000, and he didn't even spend all of it. So I want to know what happened. I want to know how the Tea Party got out the vote. And we're very pleased today to have two organizers from Richmond's Tea Party, Bruce Jaggard, he's a semi-retired consultant for a brush manufacturer, and Ben Sloan, who runs a software company. He's chairman of the Goochland County Republican Committee. And most importantly, he's a fellow Yes fan. Yeehaw. Welcome, gentlemen. (laughs) Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Somebody just tell me what happened last week, or let's step back for a minute. What was the beef? What was the beef with Eric Cantor? You have arguably uh, the most powerful Republican in the in the party here, and someone who could deliver, who could bring home the biscuit, bring home the bacon, and he was ousted rather unceremoniously. Well, I think uh, Robin, anytime you have an upset like that, there's a lot of factors that go in play, and the first one that you mentioned is there was uh, a lot of people in the district who were not happy with him. And this no one knew until a lot of, uh, of uh, volunteers who went out knocking on doors and talking to people and even talking to Cantor supporters found out that uh, there is a lot of discontent, uh, many different reasons, never just one. One is the fact that uh, he's seen as a Washingtonian, uh, did not spend a lot of time in the district, no town halls, no talking to the people. Uh, a lot of people were unhappy with the fact that uh, we're still in debt and getting the debt's getting bigger, the immigration issue. So there were a lot of issues, but it all began with a discontent and a disconnect between the voters in the district and Mr. Canner. Now, Ben, Ben Sloan, what was the foot in the door message when you wanted to engage someone and, and uh, kind of foment that indignation and get out the vote thing? Because it's not an easy thing to do. In a, in a kind of a primary year in a non-election, non-presidential election? Well, I think there's several things, one of which you have to look at who your target audience is. So at different doors, it was different hot-button issues. So, for example, if you are a dine-to-wool GOP activist Republican, you could talk about the slating that occurred that was really driven by his campaign in other parts of the Commonwealth Virginia, and that was very important. If you talk in, in, in other areas, you could talk about some of the issues, whether it be TARP, immigration, or others. And so I think it was, it was kind of tailored to who, who you were talking to at the time. 
and that that was really important because it was a it was a combined message but it was also different to what the hot button issues were for individuals across the 7th district so it's almost a chameleonic approach or you can come in and see if there's indignation about tarp which by the way happened in 2008 and the bailouts are uh, some people uh, really shake their fists at the IRS others are really peeved that uh, Congressman Cantor suggested he was amenable to some sort of negotiation on immigration. Uh, so there wasn't a single hot-button issue? I'll say it, it com- comes back to what Bruce was saying. It, it was kind of a wave, a wave function that occurred. You know, if you look at displacing somebody at his level, it's never happened before. No, I think the last time was maybe 1901, 1902. Well, there was an 1899, but if you look at actually the majority leader, that's never happened since it was formed in 1899. And these guys pay consultants ungodly amounts of money to make sure that they have this election figured out, that there aren't going to be blindsiding moments or kind of these once-in-500-year events. And how in the world did this happen, that they never even got their finger on the pulse of the dissatisfaction with him? That's something that's personally puzzling to me. I, I don't understand that internally to the campaign, why they didn't see this coming or why they didn't. I mean, looking up from the outside in, well, as, as we've talked, I'm involved in software. We run our own, in our area, our unit, we run our own data. So we looked at it and said, this is going to be very, very close. And so we, you know, for example, two years ago in the presidential election in our area, 87.4% of registered voters voted. So if you think about that, basically 9 out of 10 voters voted in presidential. So we could figure how many people approximately are going to vote, and then who do you tailor, who's, going to, who's voted in the last Republican primaries, Democratic primaries, et cetera, and get the vote out that way. Now, Bruce, what about immigration specifically? He never actually, he, he never actually moved into amnesty. He, he backtracked after he suggested, he merely telegraphed that he was amenable to negotiating on amnesty, and he got hoisted by his own petard just on that? Not just on that. That was one issue, and that was one issue that we were upset with him about. What's interesting Merely is— Really the body language? I, what, what were you upset about? No, more than the body language. If you take a look, you'll find out that people who were for 100 percent amnesty were angry at Canner. Uh, people who are conservative and are concerned with protecting the borders were angry at Canner. So he was trying to find a middle mm. path, but— angering both sides. And there's a lot of distrust that comes up, and there's some things that a politician might do and say for public consumption. You try and read behind the lines, you watch what he's doing, the trips that he's making, and you find out who's supporting him, and organizations such as Chamber of Commerce that were supporting him, wanting amnesty. So a lot of it was more than just exactly what he voted for or what he said for public consumption, Mm. but the direction in which he was going. And that concerned us. And he never would come and talk to us and explain in any detail exactly what he saw as the end target. Now, Ben, on immigration, again, you talk about your experience as chairman of uh, the Goochland County Republican Committee, and you have to be a big tent Republican to a certain degree to do this. Uh, if the Chamber of Commerce is open to amnesty, if you have tech executives that many of them uh, vote Republican, um, some Northeastern 
Uh, we're talking nationally now. Some Northeastern Republicans are like, we need some sort of strategy. You go to a city like New York, a lot of undocumented workers are driving the food service economy. Here in Richmond, you see it to a certain extent with uh, immigrants from Central America and Mexico, that there's this kind of realism that we have to have some sort of normalization strategy. How are you going to go into a national election position if as a Republican leader, you have to be at odds with the Chamber of Commerce, which, after all, has a lot of money. Well, money, as you can well understand, doesn't mean everything. And you've stated it earlier in your comments that money is not everything, so therefore it's the grassroots. Coming back to a strategy, that strategy will be developed over time with a lot of people's involvement, especially now. I think there's more engagement that's occurring. So even as a Republican leader, I have to look at it from the standpoint of, yes, bringing all the groups together. Because if you think about this on the, the Commonwealth-wide, you know, we have uh, Ed Gillespie, who's perceived as a, as a strong establishment at Republican. We've got David Brad at, at kind of as a Tea Party grassroots type. We have to bring that together to present as, as That's a the massive question, how you're going to do this going into 2016. I mean, without another bruising primary season, if you have to get together as a party and say, we're going to have to go up against, it seems like, Hillary Clinton. And to do this, we have to have our, our big tent. We at least have to behave until the general election. It's a huge challenge. I mean, think about it, how you have to bring all the spirit groups together, because you have to, in, in the Republican circle, if you look at all the Venn diagrams, you've got libertarians, you've got atheists, evangelicals, you've got people that support all kinds of different issues. But if you focus on the, I think, on the concepts of liberty, you can bring that together. And, and, and on the national level, if you look at, uh, for example, Rand Paul, Rand Paul went to CPAC, got a standing ovation. He went to the University of Berkeley, got a standing ovation. Wow. So, and, and uh, I think in, a, in another month or two, you're going to see some very odd things that the Tea Party's working on with groups you would never think are going to be working together with a Tea Party. It doesn't make any sense. But there are issues. For example, let's talk about privacy. Privacy goes across all bounds. It doesn't matter whether you're a very liberal Democrat or very conservative Republican. So you find those common grounds and you work that way and you work within building a consensus for that. And that's how you, I think, really work together. And, and I, I think you'll see it. I think you're going to see this coming together, especially as it's going to affect the next General Assembly in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Sure. Now, finally, Bruce, if you can comment on, on bailouts and the legacy of bailouts, we're five and a half years removed from the financial meltdown and Wall Street was bailed out and recapitalized. GM was bailed out and recapitalized. AIG across the board, we still have 0% interest rates, which is inducing a lot of people to speculate on housing again. What would you have done differently or what would you have expected from the Bush administration, which is on the way out, and frankly, the majority of, of the House and Senate that voted for TARP? That's a real tough question to answer. And I will say because that's in an area of economics that's really beyond my scope, other than uh, we've got to find a way to prevent getting into those situations in the first place. The concept of anything being too big to fail is a false concept. Nothing is too big to fail. So these no. banks now, though, J.P. Morgan, Wam, <laughs> J.P. Morgan is now J.P. Morgan, WAMU, Bear Stearns, Providian, all of these things accordioned into its masthead, into its corporate letterhead. It's far bigger and far too bigger to fail than it was in 2008. And this happened under the watch of, of both parties. Yes, I agree. And I don't like how large a lot of these financial institutions are getting, uh, a lot of corporations are getting. 
how big the federal government is getting. A lot of the things that we profess is really limited government. We would like to see, you know, state governments taking over a lot of the roles that the federal government does. The lower we can get down to the people, the better. There's a lot of financial advisors who can't function anymore unless they're part of a big organization. And this is a, a troubling aspect that we've got to move away from. Okay. Thank you, Bruce Jaggard and Ben Sloan. They're activists with the Richmond Tea Party. Really nice of you to come here on short notice today, and we look forward to having you back on the show. Our pleasure, Robin. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Stay with us. Support for this program was provided by The Martin Agency. Headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, The Martin Agency has consistently been ranked among the top advertising firms by national media and industry leaders alike. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we're here in Richmond, Virginia, where there was a political earthquake last week on Primary Tuesday, and Eric Cantor, one of the most powerful Republicans in the country, was ousted by a little-known Tea Party prof at Randolph-Macon College. That's where Deborah Rodman is an associate professor of anthropology and an expert witness for U.S. federal immigration courts, where she provides affidavits and testimony for migrant-seeking political asylum. I figure she was a perfect person to bring on this show, not only because she's at Randolph-Macon and in between these two candidates that are vying for Congressman Cantor's seat, but that she knows immigration, which was, by all conventional reads, the hot-button issue that got Tea Partiers to the polls on an otherwise sleepy, foregone conclusion election. Professor Rodman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what are we seeing right now in the news specifically with a ton of mothers and children at the border being intercepted by INS and being warehoused? And the Tea Party seems to have billed this as something that was a function of potential immigration reform, meaning that people could come here and there was a last call for them to come to the United States. Well, we've been seeing, we meaning those of us on the ground, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a scholar and an expert witness. I'm an anthropologist. I work with migrant communities. But um, I get contacted by people who work at law clinics on the border, who work with migrants on the border. So for about two years now, we've been hearing and been getting questions, what's going on? Why are there uh, this increased number of women and children on the border? So it's not a surprise, and it's been building for a while, so that the news is emerging that this is just something that suddenly came forth. Definitely you know, increased numbers just recently, but the, the tick up has been going on for about two years now. So, you know, yearly, we definitely see, you know, under 10,000 undocumented uh, minors coming through with their mothers, teenagers. That's pretty steady. Then last year, was we really saw an increase to about 24, 25,000. This year, we're looking at what they're saying, maybe 60 and above wow. thousand children on the border. And so uh, now we're hearing, all of a sudden, we're hearing about it in the media. But this is something that we've been seeing for quite a while. But and any validity to this argument that there was a last call appeal that people said, <laughs> people who had a, a relative in the United States said, get out while you can, while the possibility of amnesty is being I think. About. In DC? No, I think this is something that has come together. There are political, economic, and social reasons why migrants come. They are fleeing, you know, increased violence in Central American countries. People are referring to DACA, which is the Deferred Action for uh, Unaccompanied Minors. 
that was passed in 2012, but that doesn't apply to this, the kids that we're seeing on the border right now. Now, there's a possibility that if the coyotes and the human smugglers are take advantage of the fact of something that has always existed, that, you know, all migrants, when they're checked at the border, are screened for asylum possibilities there before they're returned. But unaccompanied minors have always been either found relatives for or processed and given over to um, human services. So that's always existed. But right now we're hearing in the news as if the Obama administration is responsible for this uptake because of DACA. But that doesn't apply to the child migrants that are coming today. And in fact, all unaccompanied minors are eventually sent back. That's the there, there's no road to citizenship for anybody right now because it's been so long since we've had immigration reform. That's decades of needing immigration reform, and this is possibly the result of slacking on immigration reform that we haven't had any changes or possibilities. Um, for migrants today who have relatives and children back home. And, you know, a lot of these unaccompanied minors have relatives in the United States. But they will, you know, arrive at the border. They will get processed. They're taken to human services. And if they have relatives in the United States, once they get to that address, it's Boston, Los Angeles, Richmond, they will then have to appear in immigration court and most likely be deported. Judges do have um, the ability to allow them to stay. They have that right, but it depends on the situation. Right. Well, I, I'm still struck. You know, this is not a monolithic topic, immigration or immigration reform. Here in the 7th District in Richmond, and I've I've lived here, I moved here two years ago, and we've been here uh, I, I've been struck that there's a Bosnian community, there's a Vietnamese and Cambodian community, there's a Koreatown in Midlothian, and I would venture a guess that if you polled uh, people on immigration reform broadly, you'd have a hundred different answers, a hundred different methods. For example, the Cambodians who came here, some I met at the restaurant scene here on Horsepen Road, is, is uh, many are proud that they came here legitimately. Many are proud that they stumped for Ronald Reagan. People in the Korean community don't see a lot of things eye to eye the way the Latino community, for example, in California or Miami votes on immigration reform. You talk about Mexican-Americans or Central Americans versus Cuban-Americans in Miami. So is there any truth to this idea that immigration reform broadly, if you step back from it, is just a, absolutely a losing issue for the Republican Party, that it's something that the Democrats can only own? No, I think that the Republicans are seeing the light. I mean, we're, when we're talking about strong economic arguments for reforming immigration to give these 12 million or so undocumented migrants uh, possibilities. You know, we talk, oftentimes we hear this word amnesty. We're not even talking about amnesty. That's sort of the, the buzzword to shut down talking about immigration reform. As it is, any immigration form is going to be very slow, very step-by-step, step, not even fast enough for many. We're, we're, the migrants, whether you're unauthorized, legal migrants, they're all, you know, huge contributors to our economy. They, they run our businesses. You don't need to be uh, legal to have a business license. They are part and parcel of our economic system. We talk about the housing crash. What would happen if we legalized migrants who would invest in the housing market? Now, there hasn't been immigration reform, and you were talking about sort of maybe the clash between legalized migrants and unauthorized migrants. It's oftentimes the legalized migrants who are stepping in in place of the government right now because migrants seek integration. They seek ways to become part of the civil world. They seek ways to learn English. They seek ways to find jobs. They seek ways to create businesses. And it's the middlemen now, instead of it being the government, at the turn of the century when migrants first came to the U.S., it was the government that really 
set up ways in which migrants could assimilate, integrate. That's why many of us are the you know first, second generation um, immigrants in the United States who you know went to college and have businesses. And these legalized migrants are the ones who serve as intermediaries for the undocumented migrants until we have more support for their ability to legally assimilate into our great nation. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are here with Deborah Rodman. She is a professor of anthropology and immigration advocate at Randolph-Macon College. Incidentally, the the college that has uh, hatched the two candidates running to replace Eric Cantor. Um, Ashland is where Randolph-Macon is based, and it calls itself the center of the universe and certainly the center of the political universe for the past week, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. We've been uh, seeing quite a few uh, Fox News Channel and other news uh, agencies showing up and trying to get interviews. All the news trucks with All their... All the news trucks with their satellites. Now, you you talked about the economic importance of immigrants. And this is a you know, 200-year-old story in the United States. If you talk about German immigrants coming to New York, followed by the Polish and Russian and Irish immigrants. Italian. And the Italians and came. And, for example, you, you and I are from Miami, and I came from Iran to Miami. Legally, uh, we took a plane, one of the last direct flights out from... Uh, Miami, you know, from London to uh, New York and then Miami. But then I remember my mom feeling that, you know, with the Mariel Boatlift and the Cuban refugees arriving in 1980, that there were people who did it legitimately and illegitimately, that we went through a whole bunch of different obstacles and, and learning English and applying for a green card that other people didn't have to immediately do, that there was a right way to do it and there was another way of just kind of showing up and praying for something to happen. Well, there would be a right way if, and, and you often hear this from friends of mine. I grew up in Miami too. You know, my Cuban friends and parents and colleagues, they're always say, well, you know, and you'll hear this rhetoric, you know, if they just, you know, came here legally, if there's no immigration reform, there's no way to come legally. And we're not just talking about Latin American migrants here in the United States. Unauthorized migrants that live in the United States today overstayed their visas, came on planes. They didn't just come through Mexico. We have Asian populations, Eastern European and Virginia Beach. We have plenty of populations who have overstayed their visas, are working in the United States. Because there hasn't been immigration reform in decades, there is no legal means. There is people say, well, why don't they just come here legally? Well, there is no legal means until we look at our immigration system, our broken immigration system, and look at it not from a political bent or this, you know, let's close the border. It's unrealistic. We need to move forward, figure out what to do with this, not just for Latin American migrants, but for all the migrants that make up this great nation. Now, what would happen to food service in places like New York City or some of the kind of the lower rung jobs. Honestly, honestly, no, you try to get a film you try to called get a, there's a Day a fil- Without a Mexican. A Day Without a Mexican right. that everything would shut down. And I think people don't realize when they talk about undocumented migration that every restaurant they go to, every you know house that they've stood in that's been built in the past. So well, there were so you decades. know there are encampments outside of Home Depots. There are day labor. You, you know you go up to Alexandria, Virginia, yeah. and it used to be that um, undocumented workers would show up at a Home Depot and offer. To tar your roof or to do landscaping and, and services, and they were a big have, part of the housing boom. And some cities have set up now labor centers. Uh, Jupiter, Florida, there's a wonderful documentary uh, called Brotherstown that, that talks about how cities saw 
what was going on with these large migrant populations that were a part of their economy, they're a part of the, the social life, and they set up day labor centers so that they wouldn't be taken advantage of. I get phone calls every once in a while from migrants in the Richmond area saying, I was hired by this person, they're not, they never paid me, here's a phone number, can you please call them and see what's going on? Because there's a language barrier. You know, these are, we're talking about the more recently arrived. And as we haven't maybe mentioned before, many of the migrants and some of these unaccompanied minors that we're seeing recently in the past decade, we're seeing many more undocumented indigenous migrants. Richmond has a very large indigenous migrant population. Spanish isn't even their first language. And indigenous languages talk about double discrimination. They're discriminated against with even among the Latin American migrant populations because they're really at the bottom of the social ladder in their country and they're the poorest of the poor. That's something new as well. You know, in decades past, many of the migrants that came to the United States were more middle class or lower middle class who had the means to get here in the first place to get a visa uh, to start a business. And Dave Brad has talked about, you know, we need free markets. Well, you know, one of the results of free markets and free trade is NAFTA, which lowered the costs of corn in these countries where, like Mexico, Central America, where corn is is the, the basis of life, corn farming. And when you've undercut and lowered corn prices, that's when we saw an uptick in indigenous farmers coming from southern Mexico, from Guatemala, indigenous Maya who speak indigenous languages because they could no longer make a living. I mean, this is immigration. It's a complicated topic. It's not as simply to say they heard that it's easy to come to the United States. Coming to the United States is a difficult decision. You do not send people, do not take sending their children to the United States lightly. Mexico is notoriously dangerous. That's mm-hmm. why we don't see women and children generally crossing through Mexico. It's, it's known as a minefield. You have high incidents of sexual assault, murder, violence against women along the way on the Mexican route. And people do not just get up one day and decide, I'm going to migrate to the United States because I've heard it's easy. These are difficult decisions. These are people who are fleeing immediate crisis situation. You know, Central America has a lot of political upheaval in the past couple of years with the coup in Honduras and um, increased violence on the streets. This is not something that just happens in a day. So then fast forward for this. How is this going to affect, I know you're not a political scientist, but uh, this is really where there's a cross-section of anthropology and economics and uh, real-time politics. Going into a national election, how is the Republican Party, which after all, the Chamber of Commerce, the kind of the moneyed northeastern Washington corridor wing of the Republican Party is pro-immigration reform. It realizes that this is not tenable, but uh, the kind of the, the red meat wing, the the, the right wing of the party is is vehemently against it and seal off our borders. How in the world are they going to reconcile these two? I don't know. This is It's going to take real leadership. I think it's going to take a couple cult of personalities to really stand up and speak to the truth of migration, to speak to the larger, broader themes about what America is about, that we are a country of immigrants and that we need to support. And it's not we're not just a country of immigrants. I'm not saying, you know, let's just let everybody in. But also we have strong interdependent ties with Central America. They're our neighbors. And so we can't just turn... The the migrants have been coming from Central America and Mexico for generations to work in our agricultural fields. They don't come just out of the blue. Most of these people come already have relatives in the United States. It's going to take real leadership from the Republican Party to find some sort of middle ground. I think George W. Bush, right before 9-11, had been calling for immigration reform. That all went downhill. It's, you know, over 10 years later... And we need to start having a, 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 a nice and civil discussion about immigration. 
That was Deborah Rodman, professor of anthropology and an immigration advocate at Randolph-Macon College, not far from Richmond, Virginia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Stay with us. This program is made possible with support from Virginia Commonwealth University. Located in Richmond, Virginia, VCU is a premier public research university focused on academic success. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are here with Rick Klein, the political director of ABC News, to talk about the huge earthquake that erupted, blindsided everyone here in central Virginia, Richmond, uh, last uh, Tuesday with Eric Cantor losing a primary to a person that he outspent by a factor of 20. Rick, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Robin. Everybody should know that Rick and I go back a long way, and it's a very faithful interaction. He was my college newspaper editor at the Daily Princetonian, and I gave this guy so much heartburn. He shed so much stomach lining on my account to let me be their resident polemicist and tick off every sorority and every constituency on campus. And he had every right to fire me at least six or seven times, but he let me uh, stick around and fall through the cracks. And here I am, uh, a schmuck with a podcast 20 years later, right? I agree with everything you just said, Robin. That's, exa- that's exactly what transpired in the in the, in the in the mid to late nineties in uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. You're just too too civil to say anything like that. It's <laughs> exactly what, right. But what, what just transpired down here in Richmond? Because certainly you and I, we were talking about getting together for a show before this. Yeah, this wasn't supposed to happen. No, it wasn't. It's, uh, you know, we never get surprised anymore in politics, or we don't feel like we do anymore. But this was this was just out of nowhere. Because you have a situation where, you know, look, I, I had heard a lot about the potential for an Eric Cantor primary challenge. I'd read some scattered stories. Uh, I'd even assigned a reporter to go and, uh, and interview Mr. Brown when he came to Washington. But no one took it seriously. No one thought there was a chance that Eric Cantor uh, could lose in his district for a lot of reasons. One is, you just figure the guy has the place wired after, uh, you know, seven terms in Congress. Gerrymandered uh, he, like, a, like an yeah, art form. District, the district redrawn even to become more Republican. And, and you add to that, he doesn't have a reputation as a flaming liberal or even a moderate. If anything, he was the Tea Partier in, in House leadership. He was a thorn in Boehner's side. He's the reason we didn't have the grand bargain. He was, a, uh, he, he was, he was working against Boehner's interests throughout the fiscal fights that seemed to dominate the second half of Obama's first term. So I, I don't think there was any scenario that, that people were saying, you know what, this guy could actually lose this thing. But you look at a district like this, 70,000 people end up voting. It's about 9% or something of the of the whole congressional district. So it's a low turnout match. And you have a, a, a man in Mr. Canner who um, did two things, obviously very wrong. One is he seemed to be disconnected from his own district, uh, seemed to be more Washington than Richmond. Uh, that, that The great detail about how he spent more money at Washington fundraisers at steakhouses than Brad spent on his whole campaign. Yeah, Rick, but you know that's inevitable. Whether you're an insurgent, you know, in the contract with America in 94, you come in, you become an establishment candidate. You consolidate, you're around yourself. It's like these are the stages of revolution. At a certain point, a regime installed by revolution has to protect its own tail. I suppose if you're in leadership, but you know, Ted Cruz is is the example that, uh, that that proves the rule in the other direction. I suppose, and he is more uh, he's more counterinsurgent than ever, even uh, even though he is technically the vice chairman of the NRSC, and he's they've tried to co-opt him. But you're right. I mean, look, if you're going to be part of leadership, you're going to be part of a lot of uh, a lot of bad deals from the perspective of your base. Even that, though, no one saw that coming. The other thing that 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 I think Cantor did is. 
you know, look, he, he, he's never been known as someone who was too friendly with President Obama. He was the architect of the strategy of standing against Obama in, in 2009, when that wasn't an obvious choice. It seemed like Obama had changed the political world. That could have been risky, too. But he did, over time, have some positions that were a little bit more moderate than the, than the conservative wing, the Tea Party wing, what have you, would, would, would want to support. So they created an opening. And Dave Bratt was the beneficiary of it. He, he's not a traditional flamethrower. Uh, he, he doesn't even consider himself really to be a Tea Partier, but he was certainly the beneficiary of a lot of Tea Party energy. Now, when you talk about raising $5 million for the establishment cakewalk versus something on the order of $200,000, which wasn't even all spent for Brat, um, can you comment on how you can kind of use the leverage model of bringing in a a Laura Ingram or an Ann Coulter here to kind of amplify your message? It was, after all, an open primary. Yeah, it's an open primary, and that that can get a lot of people, independents, Democrats even, to go in there. Anyone who was angry at Eric Cantor for any reason would have had a reason to do it. I don't think the Democrats swung the election. I do think the the Laura Ingram, Ann Coulter, Mark Levin factor was, and even Drudge, was was driving this. Two things you can do now with a shoestrap campaign. First, you can just put videos online, and he did a lot of that. And a lot of them didn't have a ton of views, but people that watched them found it to be compelling, and you can get your message out that way. And the other thing is, if you have the free media and, and conservative talk radio, Richmond is a hotbed for this, and there's communities like that across the country that uh, that, that are listening to uh, the folks who are uh, dominating the radio airwaves, and it is mostly conservative, you allow uh, a cause to be adopted. And you know, conservatives have actually, for all of the organizing energy that we talk about on the Democratic side and the Obama online army and all that, conservatives have had a, a very successful time connecting uh, via the, the talk radio superstars like the Laura Ingrams and the Ann Coulters, and also via Twitter. And, and, and that gets them to, to know each other and blogs. And, and they're a very dedicated audience that knows how to connect with each other. And that can have an outsized impact. And it can give some publicity for a campaign that's outside the normal metrics. We're used to counting these things in dollars and cents because that's the only thing you can really measure uh, up to Election Day. The polls in this, there were no external polls to, uh, of any consequence. The internal polls that the candidate people put up had them up 35 points. Yeah, so to we tell you, to off. give you to give you an <laughs> idea of how blindsided we were, I was, I, you know, I was having sushi Tuesday night in the heart of his base, um, in the River Road corridor where you have these yeah. trophy wives and country club husbands come and, you know, pay $20 a roll for sushi. And I was just craving the sushi roll. And I started getting texts from people back in New York and D.C. Like, do you see Cantor's going to lose this? There's no way he's going to pull it off you yeah. know, with 60 percent of the precincts. You know, I was like, are you kidding me? And you literally look around and you see the waitress mentioning it to trophy wife A, B, C. <laughs> and it was this massive eruption. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is, after all, the era of Nate Silver and polling right. and predictability and statistical significance and no one saw this coming and my, my flip side story of that is I'm on the I'm on the Amtrak Acela coming back from New York on the quiet car which I don't normally do but I really needed a nap we had been flat out for a couple of days and I was just looking forward to a quiet run and all of a sudden on the train I start I start hearing people whispering hey did you, you see about Canner have you seen this have you and people start filling up Twitter feeds and this is the quiet car you're not supposed to talk to each other suddenly everyone's talking to each other can you believe it it was kind of a dorky experience and you think about it but everyone was into this did the AP call it yet did they call it and it became this community thing because we were all just beyond surprised full disclosure you're listening to Rick Klein from ABC News he's a political director they're talking about the broader 
implications of what happened here in Richmond, Virginia, with Eric Cantor uh, losing a shocker of a primary race that he was supposed to trounce the other guy on, uh, was it June 10th? That's exactly right, yeah. So I'm interested, actually, in where immigration, that was the knee-jerk that everybody said, that this was something that the party simply seized on the fact that Eric Cantor had changed his body language and said he was potentially, allegedly amenable to talking about, mayhaps, perhaps, immigration <laughs> reform, and that they use this to organize the base out there. I'm looking at the Washington Times, and it's, you know, right now it says, border agent laments gang members entering the U.S. Why are we letting them in here? It's a very pungent kind of red meat issue. You, you know, sure, sure. Young people coming in, a lot of that is conflated with gang members and lawlessness and fear of licentiousness. Uh, what is your read on that? To what extent did immigration uh, ultimately end Eric Cantor's political career, at least for the near term? My sense is that that was an issue that gave Dave Bratt a voice, but it wasn't an issue that ultimately put him over the top. And what I mean by that is that you need something to be kind of an easy stand in if you're going to make the broader case and maybe an effective case against someone like Eric Hanser. And for for Dave Bratt, it was easy. It was amnesty. That's what allowed his... Uh, his cause to go national. That's what Laura Ingram was talking about. That's what Mark Levin. But Rick, and, there and are Ed other Coulter candidates out there. I mean, somebody talked about Lindsey Graham actually being. You know, the body language is far more definite with regards to amnesty, and the Tea Party didn't scalp him. Well, two thoughts on that. One is Lindsey Graham had the benefit of like six other people running against him, so you didn't have a chance to coalesce the forces against them. The other thing that Lindsey Graham did that was different than Eric Cantor was he owned it. And Eric, Lindsey Graham leaned into it. He was the sponsor of the bill. He went around the state saying, I, this is how I am. And it lets at least one school of thought that voters might forgive you for being on the other side of an issue. They won't forgive you for wishy-washiness. And the fact that Eric Cantor was out there railing against amnesty and saying he was going to be the one who opposed President Obama's immigration reform when we knew the truth was his support of the DREAM Act, that he supported some other minor steps, even though he didn't like the whole Senate bill. There were lots of pieces of it that he supported. That was seen as, as more of a betrayal. And I think that's what angered a lot of the right-wing folks. Although, look, count me among the surprise with Lindsey Graham. If, coming into the year, I thought Lindsey Graham was probably the most uh, endangered uh, Senate Republican in primaries, more so than Mitch McConnell, uh, more so than Thad Cochran. I thought he was the guy to watch, and that just never it never really materialized. Lindsey Graham went home a lot. Uh, he stayed connected. Even his enemies, one person pointed out, call him Lindsey. And, <laughs> and he's able to have his state wired in a way that you'd think that uh, Eric Cantor would have as well. Well, I'm interested, actually, in knowing how this affects the Chamber of Commerce wing of the party, because you yeah. have the Tea Party here. When they talk about it's in the same breath, you know, Washington establishment, Chamber of Commerce, TARP apologist right. type people. Um, it's not all the same, obviously, but the Chamber of Commerce is being realistic here and realizing that uh, its corporate constituency realizes whether you're a tech company, whether you're a food service company, uh, whether you're the McDonald's of the world, that they actually, like it or not, depend on undocumented immigrants right. and they want much more visibility on immigration reform. So how are, how is the big tent Republican Party going to bring these people in ahead of 2016? So interesting. So watching the Sunday shows yesterday, Eric Cantor was on our Sunday show on ABC saying there's this divide in the Republican Party. And then Aaron Reince Priebus was over on CBS saying there's no divisions in the Republican Party. Well, no, of course there are. Of course there are. And this is a, this is an existential challenge to Republicans. And, and the country club wing, as you put it, has uh, kind of the Chamber of Commerce wing has, has, has risen up and has uh, been trying to defend their people. Uh, they didn't wake up to the, to the Eric Cantor problem because they didn't think there was a problem at all. But they're trying it again in Thad Cochran. And the business community worried about 
uh, losing a Republican is a reliable vote and uh, and really a dependable vote. You know where he's going to be. You know he'll be with you on the big business issues. So, uh, you know, I don't know what else they can do um, beyond spending money in these primaries. They're going to be at a loss for things if they start losing places where they invest. It's one thing in cancer. Cancer could be a one-off. But the Fed Cochran thing could be a bigger story in that, uh, you know, the, through the Appropriations Committee, through all the Washington connections, there's no one who embodies the the, the Republican establishment more than Cochran. And it's not that he's a, a squishy, squashy liberal either. He just happens not to, to vote in the pure Tea Party way all the time. If he were to go down, and it looks very possible a week from tomorrow that he could, uh, he, that's a major problem. That's a major problem for Republicans. And I think it's something that is going to leave them again scratching their heads. And in terms of the, the, the larger battle, they have to hope that uh, that all all is forgotten by the time of the general election, because they, what they can't afford is to start losing seats in places like Richmond, Virginia or Mississippi. I wonder, Rick, if this is akin to kind of telling off a cop or eating a massive meal at, at Carl's Jr. You know, it feels great in the moment, but you end up paying for it afterwards. No offense to Carl's Jr. I, I don't know. You could plug in Taco Bell or someone else. I'm going to get shot for saying this. But, I, you know, it, again, it's it's one of those things where. You know, you do it, and typically, if you're an incumbent, you could do this primary shuffle and preach, talk the talk, and and and, mm-hmm. and rattle the sabers, and then and race back to the center or something approaching the center for the general election. What in the world is the party going to do into what appears to be Hillary Clinton consolidating her lead into 2016? The, the Republicans right now, the suggestions for 16 to me is that this, the only way to win is going to be to the right. That if you try to emerge as a moderate, then people will cite the the, the example of McCain and Romney, and now even Eric Cantor, and say that's not the way to win elections. That's not way, the way to go. So, you know, as much as the party, I think, broadly knows they need to they need to come around on immigration reform, uh, on on social issues, the younger voters just aren't with them. I don't see, I, it doesn't seem to me like we're going to see that evolution happen in time for 16. I think it has to happen eventually on some of these issues that just demographically the party is going to become obsolete. But I, I think the incentive structure for 2016 in the primaries is going to be to run further to the right and give yourself less and less daylight. It will really exacerbate the, the big war, the big battle of politics that we've seen animate the last couple of elections. You know, again, but uh, Obama in 2012 didn't just win by an incidental amount. And that the, the, the Tea Party said, yes, we're vindicated when you put in a wishy-washy candidate, when you don't know what it, that Romney's position truly was on health care reform or whether right. he was for something before he was against it. Again, though, you need to have a, a person, at least George W. Bush running in, in 2000, was open to immigration reform. Or he said that he was a, a, a person who could do this in a state that was intimately uh, affected by illegal immigration. That seems to be verboten now. Could you imagine a candidate coming out there and saying, no, I want to step above this fray and say that we do need immigration reform? If so, is there someone out there who speaks to this? Jeb Bush is the best the best guess at that. You have to go back to the Bush family. Marco Rubio, of course, supported that Senate bill, although he's distanced himself from it. And I think he's going to twist himself around a little bit in trying to explain that. I, I don't see anyone in the Republican Party is likely to emerge as a voice for big, comprehensive immigration reform that involves legalization. You have to speak to these issues clearly. And, you know, the, the, the moment where Mitt Romney may have lost himself the election and any opportunity he would have had to get an inroad among Latinos, among younger voters, immigrant voters, and those who are sympathetic to their issues may have been when he talked about self-deportation. That got huge play in Latino media, in Spanish language media, enormous play. He became known as the, the self-deportation guy. And that just became something that shut him down and, and, and it made it impossible for him to get beyond with with Latino voters and a lot of younger voters. The Republicans will need to find a way to speak to this issue, but I don't think there's going to be anyone on that debate stage who's willing to say, 
to his or her rivals, no, we need to have a path to legalization. We need to make this right for people. I don't think that's going to happen. Jeb Bush is the only one that I can think of that'd be situated to do it. Um, I have no sense that he's likely to run, although I think he's, he's certainly telling people that he's interested in it. Uh, but even he will find ways to shade it because I don't think that uh, there's a sense of the of being any oxygen in that direction of someone who's full on in support of, uh, of a legalization uh, push in, in line with what the Senate does. And I think people don't realize that you, know, you don't hear this enough that the Latino vote is by no means a monolith. If you talk about the Cuban-Americans right. in South Florida and their views have evolved over uh, you know, several decades since the fall of uh, the regime in Cuba and the ascension of Fidel Castro, you talk about uh, Mexican-Americans in Southern California, you talk about um, uh, Central Americans uh, coming through into Arizona. I wonder how these communities are going to view broadly what immigration reform means, or if immigration reform is just a Rorschach for, yeah. uh, I'm just a big tent Republican, and I get it, and I'll take care of you. Yeah, I, I think a lot a lot with immigration reform, and particularly with the Latino community now, and again, it's not a monolith, but you're right, it's a check your box. If you want to have the conversation more broadly, you have to make sure that you don't come across as openly hostile to immigrants. Uh, if if the sense is you want to kick them all out, then I think there's the, you're not going to be able to engage in a conversation with with a, a good chunk of Latino voters, and that's a, such a fast growing demographic. It's an enormous piece of the electorate, and it becomes even more demographically important in states that uh, that could at some point swing to purple or blue. Looking at you, Texas or Arizona or Georgia. So uh, look, Republicans are going to have to come to grips with this, and the smart Republicans realize that uh, you know they, they've made the point. Several people made the point that we're in a we're in a situation now where Republicans can't lose in the midterms but can't win in the general. Now, you know, that, that'll feel good this year, but it'll feel bad in two years, and, and you go back and forth on that. And the Republicans need to me- remake the party. They recognize that after the 2012 election. They need it to be open, ex- inclusive, all that. But when it comes to the voting results that are being delivered in primaries, the incentive's not there yet. Wow. Rick Klein, thank you so much for joining us. It was an honor, a privilege, and I, I, I thank you and apologize. And um, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I'm I'm so grateful for everything that you countenanced 20 years ago as my terrified newspaper editor, and it's it's wonderful to have you here on the show. I hope you come back. I've put it all out of my mind. It's all, you know, well in the past. Robin, keep up the great work. Look forward to being back. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey, thank you. Full disclosure, we'll see you next week. Our program today was recorded at Audio Image Recording in Richmond, Virginia. Our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to the Martin Agency and Virginia Commonwealth University for their support. Check out our website at fulldiscloseradio.com and on Twitter at FullDRadio. The executive producer of Full Disclosure is Jeffrey Bennett. I'm Robin Farzad.